Have you ever wondered, as you read through the Corinthians, how things went so bad so fast? I mean, Paul went to Corinth probably sometime around A.D. 50, and he seems to have had an incredibly fruitful year or two while he was there, for there was a substantial church started across the strata of Corinth, and yet, in no more than five or six years later, he had to write this letter that we're studying, and then a second, even harsher letter addressing so much that is wrong with the way the Corinthians are living their lives. So what happened? What, what happened? My personal theory is it was a fundamental rejection of who and what Christ was really like. Now I know that sounds like a contradiction because how does one reject Christ shortly after receiving Christ and maintaining a verbal loyalty to him? But allow me to try to explain my theory. Like most people, when confronted with their own mortality and confronted with their dubious track record when it comes to moral living, the Corinthians were quick to respond positively to this message of a Savior who amazingly offers redemption free of charge. That's a good deal when you're facing your own mortality. But I think they were only willing to hear half the message Paul was delivering. They were unwilling to hear the follow me bit that Jesus was always talking about and that Paul was clearly repeating to the Corinthians. Now, of course, they may have created a sense of personal responsibility going forward as Christians, but I think their idea was probably more in line with what they thought was good and acceptable human living as opposed to what God thought was good and acceptable human living. So, as we approach the next homily in Paul's first essay, we, last week we talked about Paul and Paul, so it's about you. This week we're going to take up this parable of the field and the farmers. And as we approach this, Paul's going to explain this rub in much more tangible terms. Now, we've been looking at this for weeks. He's already defined the issue in much broader terms. Remember, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And it's perfectly clear Paul's been making it's a huge stumbling block and foolishness to Christians as well. That's why he has to write this letter. And then Paul spent a substantial amount of time explaining the difference between God's kingdom and our kingdom. The spirit of God versus the spirit of man, God's weakness versus man's strength, God's foolishness versus man's wisdom. We've been looking at all that. And now, finally, he brings it down to very accessible imagery. What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each to his task. But in a culture, Corinthian culture, bigger, 
was better, richer was success, status was power, excess was good, servant may as well have been a four-letter word. Yet apart from this attitude, apart from this perspective of serving others, have we really grasped the gospel message? Can we really follow Christ apart from this? He puts it this way. Servitude is the basic stance of all truly Christian behavior. Think about it. Sort of puts a focus on moral Christianity in perspective, doesn't it? Because what happens is there are no doubt the Judeo-Christian ethic has come from a brilliant explanation by God that this is how you love others. But the danger that always happens with humanity and always wants to go the other way and make it about us is that we follow a Judeo-Christian ethic just to say, look at me, I'm good. And I've completely done away with the whole point of having that ethic which is to love others. Servitude is the basic stance of all truly Christian behavior. Hence the irony in Paul's response continues. This letter is just filled with it. The cross is the paradigm of the gospel and of God's ways that stand in contradiction to human ways. Let's remember a few things Christ himself said. These are those that don't come up too much in Sunday school. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. I think that's pretty clear. I have set you an example, Jesus says. And then in Matthew, he says this. Jesus called them together and he said, listen, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is who Christ is. This is what Christ is like. And this is the example we are supposed to imitate. See, this is love. I like that prayer Paul was praying this morning. He gets past the motions into real, tangible, practical love. This is what love looks like. Give his life as a ransom for money. Put others before yourself. And Jesus was clear, love God, love others. And he defined love for. I love the way Mother Teresa understands the concept of imitating Christ. Love in action is served. I love that. But just like with the Corinthians, in our society, servant 
is a four-letter word, isn't it? So we reject, subconsciously of course, this definition of love that Jesus gave, and we create all these other ways of loving God as good Christians that have nothing to do with serving others. That have nothing even to do with caring about others. And we imagine we are right with God because of these other ways that we serve God. Yet as we have been learning, as we've been studying the beginning of Corinthians, this is what we've been looking at, the cross in Christian unity, and as we are about to see very clearly today in this current homily, the parable of field and farmers, maybe things are not as right as we think they are. If we're loving God without loving others. But, before we dive into the text, let's be sure we are not giving ourselves a loophole. Let's not narrowly define servanthood. That tends to be part of the problem in Christian circles. We get caught up in doing things as Christians. And we'll serve on this committee, and we'll do this ministry, and we'll do that, we'll do this and that. You know, it reminds me of my favorite scene in Fiddler on the Roof. I've played it here at Canaan before. I talk about it often, and some of you know it. You know, when Tevyev is asking his wife, do you love me? And she's like, do I love what? I've mended your socks. I feed the chickens. I wash your clothes. I make your meals. I milk the cow. Do I love you? And he's like, yeah, do you love me? I love that Certainly, doing tangible things for others is part of serving. Certainly. You can't go to the other extreme and say, I love you, but never do anything to prove that love. However, however, at the heart of serving is concern for the other. That's why you do it. See, there's that that individualistic philosophy that so much of Western culture is based on just seeps right into Christianity and we get to serving because we hope it makes God feel good about us as a person. See, it all comes back to us. We just can't break away from that. And God's like, no, you don't serve so you get a gold star from me. You serve because you love the person you're serving. It's concern for the other is what servanthood is. So, here we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to blow up this definition of servant. Serving must include our most excessive attempts to forgive. To show grace. To exercise mercy. To show understanding. To always offer an open door to the possibility of reconciliation. To think always of the needs of others instead of ourselves. Isn't that what this means? <coughs> Isn't it? That's what the cross was all about. Servant. 
So, Paul writes, What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul, only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task? I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their, to their own labor, for we are co-workers in God's service. I want to take a moment to appreciate the profound brilliance and beauty of this piece of writing. I haven't done this in a few weeks, because I don't want this series to just be a digression into an academic study of Paul's writing style. However, this is an especially beautiful composition, and I think it deserves uh, uh, just a couple minutes to just appreciate it, especially those of us who just love writing so much. Paul has written this with a classic ABBA style that we've seen before, the large A, we are servants, matches the next day down the bottom, we are equal servants, assigned by the Lord God's workers. And then in the middle, you know where Paul's thrust always is in the middle of his homilies, we farm, God gives growth, we are nothing, God gives growth. So first he creates this beautiful ABBA pattern, reminding us God gives growth is the whole point of this homily. Right in the middle is where we find it. But... He's got a 1 through 7, 1 through 7 pattern going on, which is even more beautiful when you look really closely at my small letters. Look at the small letters. Look what he has done. A, what then is Paul? Come to the next A, I planted. Next A, so neither he who plants, next A, the one who plants. It's Jared was making fun of me last week, so I'm not saying wow today. <laughs> Look at the small bees. What is Apollos? Apollos watered, nor he who waters is anything, and he who waters are equal. Look at the sea. Servants through whom you believed come all the way down, and each shall receive his wages according to his labor. Those are the servants. And the D, as the Lord assigns to each, we are fellow workers with God. And then right in the middle, the two little E's, but God gave the growth, but God who gives the growth. This is pure poetry. This is... Oh, Shakespeare didn't even get this good. Incredible, isn't it? And we lose all that. I mean, we lose it all in our English translation. But it's spectacular. Spectacular. But anyway, that was good for me. Let's see what we can learn from this song. The Corinthians' focus has shifted from Christ to human. In this case, from Jesus to Paul and Apollos. And Paul reminds them that any focus other than Jesus Christ is going to cause problems. The writer of the Hebrews puts it perfectly. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. You know, th this would be a really good thing. Christianity could just remember this. Are you starting to hear the overall letter of the theme, the overall theme of the letter starting to come through again? Christianity is about Christ. It's not about Paul, and it's not about Apollos, and it's not about Francis Chan, and it's not about Um, boy, you said What's his first name? Bell's first name? Robert. Robert Bell. It's not about Rob Bell, and it's not about C.S. Lewis, and it's not about Piper, and it's not about MacArthur, and it's not about G.K. Chesterton, and it's not about Luther, and it's not about Calvin. 
And it's not about anybody. It's about Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is. And so Paul breaks into this agricultural parable to help us understand this vital point. And the brilliance of using this particular parable is found in the clarity of why it is about Christ and not about us. Because God causes the growth. That's why. That's why. It's a brilliant, brilliant parable. Because it's so simple. God causes the growth, he's saying to the Corinthians. See, remember we've talked about this. The Corinthians loved their champions. Loved them. They loved their philosophers. They loved their teachers. They loved their rhetors. They loved their sophists. And they would actually fight. Literally at times, the disciples of these people would come to blows while championing, while championing their champions. There's, there's historical documentation where in the streets of Corinth, and this philosopher would be yelling over there, and this philosopher and their disciples would be fighting in the streets. And the Corinthian Christians have taken this very acceptable, very divisive behavior that is normal in their culture, and they've brought it into their Christian living. And Paul says, no. No. That is not the way of Christ. And what's more, it's stupid. Paul says here, why would you put your faith in those who plant in water when, as John Bengel notes, the grain from the first moment would be like a pebble if God was not causing the growth? I love that. Gordon Fee helps us understand this. The problem in Corinth is with perspective. They are viewing things from below, and as a result, think too highly of their teachers. Paul and Apollos do have essential tasks to perform, for which they will receive their own rewards. But they have no independent importance. From the perspective of ultimate responsibility for the Corinthians' existence as people of God, Paul and Apollos count for nothing. Without God's prior activity of bringing them to faith and causing them to grow, there is no church at all. Hence the point is clear. Stop quarreling over those whose tasks are nothing in comparison with the activity of God. Focus on Him alone, for He alone saves and sanctifies. You know what I find incredibly, incredibly sad? Is that one of the major splits in Christianity is over a guy. Calvin. Calvin didn't die for us. It, 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 and just go through the history of Christian splitting. It's over guys. It's never over Jesus Christ. And yet, when you finally try to focus on Jesus Christ and Him alone and what He said, oh my gosh, the criticism you take. I wonder what it would be like, though, if we followed St. Paul's advice to. Focus on Jesus alone. Think about that. The rub, of course, in focusing on Him alone is focusing on God as revealed by Jesus Christ is way, way too difficult. For the focus will eventually convict us that we're supposed to be living like this 
a servant of all. And so we're very careful how long we focus on this. Right up to that moment of the Holy Ghost start talking to us. Oh, well, let's, you know what? This is great doctrine we need to talk about. So then we get all into that, get that figured out, and then we touch on the cross again, right up until the Holy Spirit starts to say, this is how you're, oh, no, no, wait, let's, what did that guy say again? Let's do what he says. And the whole time, the Holy Ghost just, I just want you to live like. But see, so much of our so-called Christian living in ideas seem incredibly empty when we hold them up to this, don't they? I mean, you know when you come to the communion table, one of the beautiful things is that we all come here to this table. We all break bread together and we all have radically different ideas. You know we do. That's one of the things I love about Dana. Okay, we have people from all walks of life. And I love it. But when we come here, are you ever thinking about that? I'm not. I'm never thinking about the person who is radically theologically different than I am. Never thinking about the person who's got all sorts of different interpretations of Scripture than me. Never thinking about Jesus and then he died. It's not an easy place to come to. It sure wasn't easy for the Corinthians, eh? Less than a decade after Paul had been there, they had abandoned the imitation of Christ for something far, far different. Paul is helping them try to recapture that imitation. Paul's trying to help us recapture that imitation. I think it begins by recognizing our legitimate place in regards to God. He is the creator, we are the creation. He's the savior, we're the messenger. He's the standard. We are the imitator. And it also starts by recognizing our legitimate place in regards to each other. Only servants. I love that. We're each other's servants. That's all we are. We're equal. We're each other's servants. See, Paul says, God is everything. He's the one who makes things grow. So we all belong to him, and as such, we're equal even though we have different tasks. See, this was the problem. See right here, Paul says, the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. The Corinthians wanted to make a big deal out of the differences between Paul and Apollos. Paul said, our differences are not the issue, you guys. The different giftings that we have are essential to the work of the kingdom. But in essence, we're equal. We're all servants of each other. So whether we are gifted in music, whether we are gifted in whatever the gifting of the Holy Spirit has given us, we're all equal. We're just each other's servants. You know, I want to make a side comment here too. Paul's ministry today could be classically defined as Evangelistic, he was an evangelist. Apollos could be classically defined as he was a Christian teacher. 
I find it interesting that today there is often a very real divide between these two types of ministries in Christianity today. Evangelists can be pretty judgmental of higher Christian education as though it lacks the Spirit of God and is a waste of time. While Christian academics and teachers, and I'm guilty of this, can often judge evangelists as anti-intellectual and out-of-touch mouthpieces or silly bullhorn guys on the street corner. I think Paul would be disappointed in both sides, don't you? Sort of just all part of the kingdom. Now I want you to notice here, because Paul often gets a bad rap as being this arrogant guy. I want you to notice this incredible humility Paul is modeling in this homily. Only servants, so neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything. The one who plants and the one who waters have one person. He's talking about himself. He's one of those servants, right? Listen, from our perspective, Paul had every right to declare himself of more importance than Apollos. I mean, let's face it. There is a world of difference between what Paul did and Apollos did. Paul was an apostle. Paul founded churches. Paul made the canon. But Paul reckons that way of thinking to be also human, also below the kingdom of God. He genuinely, genuinely knows he and Apollos are equal. Genuinely. And there's a hint in what he writes at the end of verse 8 to help us further understand this equality. This is beautiful. You catch these subtleties. These are all subtle throughout Paul's writings. They will each be rewarded according to their labor. Now, we're, we're going to touch on that tricky subject of reward next week in more detail. But I want you to notice carefully what Paul has written here. In our world, in our economy, we're rewarded for results. For production. You can be the hardest laborer in the world, but if you ain't getting the job done, you ain't going to last long. That's just how it goes. That's our world. I'm facing that this week. I have tryouts coming up this week. A hundred girls are going to want to be on my soccer teams. and uh, Sadly, a bunch of them are going to not be on my soccer team. I'm going to feel horrible. That's the world we live in. They are not going to do the results. They're going to work their butts off. But they're just not going to have the results. That's our world. Look at what Paul says here. He doesn't say that, does he? They will be rewarded according to their labor. Just working hard. The kingdom of God is about faithfulness in the work itself. Not in the result. You know, and people that keep track of that, I get a little scared. I get a little scared. When I hear big evangelists flippantly talk about how many people they've led to Christ, I get scared by that. God causes the growth. Just work. Just serve. Just love. That's what we're called to do. The results are God's, not ours. 
And if we remember the parable of the workers that Jesus told, remember? We know Paul is not talking here about equal pay for equal work. We know that. Remember, don't take Paul out of context of the great story. That great parable Jesus told, some people worked all day. Some people worked five minutes and they got paid the same. The kingdom of God is about grace. Grace is the measuring stick God uses. Even in doling out whatever rewards this might mean. Which is. And grace, unlike our human kingdom's ways, is all about the heart. God's heart and our heart. As God's heart, full of grace, looks into our hearts and gives us grace. And what is that heart of grace all about? Be again servitive of the kind exhibited by the Lord himself and his apostle. There simply is no other paradigm. The God of this universe, universe serves us with his very life. Surely, surely we are called to do the same for us.